going to be in 1 Corinthians 14 tonight. 1 Corinthians 14. We finished 13. We took a look at love. And uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 14. Now, uh, putting it in context, um, chapter 12 were gifts that we took a look at. Uh, and then it ended with a desire for unity in the body. And then chapter 13 was the emphasis uh, tongues of angels, but have no love. I'm a clanging cymbal and a sounding brass. And we went through that. And so Paul is looking at a a disjointed church that has all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but no unity, and there's division amongst them, and there's rampant sin for the most part, but they still have these amazing gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, In a lot of cases in the church in America, we have order, but we don't have gifts. Uh, They had gifts and no order. Um, I can't say that we have morality or moral knowledge in the church. I mean... Um, we've never owned more property or had more buildings or radio stations or seminaries or Bible colleges or Christian universities and yet had so little impact. And you've heard me go through the statistics in California alone. Just, I was on a radio program uh, this week just recounting kind of California and what happened with Calvary Chapel and how we've really had zero impact on the state and what we're facing. And I was sitting with a uh, political leader today here in the state and kind of lamenting the direction and looking at what we're facing as a state and just kind of wondering what's the role of the church. Uh, and then I got connected with a man named Ed Silvoso, who uh, is from Argentina and has experienced amazing revival, especially in San Jose, California, with Valley Christian and what they've done with uh, as, a, as a private Christian school coming alongside the lowest performing uh, public school and turning that school around and having an enormous impact there. Ciudad Juarez, a number of places around the country or around the world that this is taking place. And his whole concept is this idea of kind of a misunderstanding of the term ecclesia, which is where we get in the, um, the Bible the term church. Uh, 114 times in the New Testament, this word church is used, and yet um, it. it, it It was changed by King James when he did the King James Bible prior to the King James Bible. uh, And as we've studied this in American history, as we've done the American Legacy series, you had the Tyndale Bible and then you had the Geneva Bible, which was the Bible of the Reformation. And with the Tyndale uh, translation from the original Greek, the Septuagint, all of that, uh, they always translated ecclesia as assembly. Uh, They never translated as church. And it wasn't until King James realized that he didn't like the margins of the Geneva Bible and this idea of civil government, and so he wanted to have authority over the church. So he, termed the, he took the term ecclesia and changed it from assembly to church. And today when we use the term church, um, it's real simple what comes to mind. It's a building with a steeple and a cross, and it's where we gather on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings and soon-to-be Sunday nights and maybe Saturdays, and and it's this idea that this is a church, this is the the church, and that was never what Jesus intended. We're going to cover that momentarily, but before we do, uh, one of the things that we're working on, and and Pastor Brad's here tonight, and he's going to be here Sunday morning and also Sunday night as we begin our Sunday night, what I, I, for lack of a better term, waiting on the Lord we're going to do our best to experience the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, waiting on the Lord, and we have a supernatural task ahead of us, and we need supernatural gifts to accomplish it. And, and the one thing I can say is you can, you can have supernatural giftings without being supernaturally weird. Um, I've often walked into churches where I, I, it was interesting, it was kind of a, uh, it, it was deafening. It, it just, uh, everybody was speaking in tongues and everybody was, it was uh, kind of a cacophony of noise. It was a place that uh, I found interesting, but I don't know that I'd invite anyone to come and be a part of. Uh, there was times that I was part of a church that I was kind of embarrassed to invite anyone if they weren't a believer. Um, and that's what they kind of call believers meetings. And you're going to see that listed here in 1 Corinthians 14. So there's got to be this marriage with the gifts of the Holy Spirit completely emphasized in 1 Corinthians, and, and they're not cessationists, they're for today. We've already proven that through our study together. We've taken a look at, at each of the gifts, the gift of tongues especially. We did a, a specific study on that, and if you didn't get it, you can go and get it online. But we're going to take a look at this idea of, of the church being uh, empowered by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, this idea of, of as we covered on Sunday, 
every instance of baptism in, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, uh, every time they were baptized, there was the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, this idea of a baptism of the Holy Spirit, empowering of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, save but for one, and they were baptized into Jesus' name, and then later they said, but you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they said, no, we don't even know what that is, and then that came about. Uh, and we saw with Jesus uh, and, and John in Luke 3 and 4, this baptism that um, um, he's baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him because he's, he's without sin, he needs no um, sacrifice for his life because he is fully, fully God, fully man, and fully without sin. Then the Spirit drives him into the wilderness, and while he's in the wilderness, uh, he's without food for 40 days. Then the, the um, complete entity of evil encompassed in uh, Lucifer, Satan, uh, tempts him and uh, says, you know, um, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms. They belong to me and it's mine to give. Jesus didn't, didn't contend with him in relation to that. And it's not until we get to Colossians chapter 2 that he's nailed all this to the cross and he's regained ownership of the earth and the kingdoms and everything belongs to him. And now with his sacrifice upon the cross, when we're baptized, we can now have this idea of the Holy Spirit descending and filling us and equipping us for a greater work. Now this occurred, um, and, and the book of Acts is taking place, Corinthians, Paul's writing to this church at Corinth, it's gone off the rails, it's having struggles, it's empowered with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but they are, they're completely disunified, they're not having an impact on the city, the city's having more of an impact on them than they are on the city, and they're self-focused, they're self-indulgent, and he's correcting all these, and so the first thing he does in 1 Corinthians 13 is he speaks on the greatest of these is love. Prophecy is going to go by the wayside. Tongues will go by the wayside. All the gifts will go by the wayside. But the one thing that will remain is love. And he emphasizes that. You'll know they're Christians by their love for one another. And this is a picture that you see of their identity within the culture. And, and then he's going to go a little bit further in 1 Corinthians 14 to identify a few more of the gifts and, and the use of them. And we're going to take a look at that. And then we're going to segue into a, uh, a look at this concept of ecclesia so that we understand it better. But before we in, engage in this journey, I really need prayer because it's all spinning in my head and I pray that it makes sense tonight. Amen? Well, pray with me. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word and we thank you for this epistle, this letter that Paul lovingly wrote to the church at Corinth, a church that was empowered with your gifts but were just convoluted in their self-focus and and uh, their immorality, and, and yet, Lord, they still possess this supernatural gifting, but they had zero impact on the city. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that as we undertake a study of 1 Corinthians 14 and then taking a look at what you intended by the term ecclesia, I pray that it would all come together for us and that we'd have a greater understanding of what it is you desire to do in and through us and, and, and what awaits us by simply asking for this baptism and this filling of your spirit upon our lives. And so, Lord, we commit this to you. We ask your blessing. Lead us into all truth, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 14, verse 1. I'm going to read through the passage. It's, it's pretty self-explanatory. I'm not going to spend an enormous amount of time. I'm going, to, uh, I'm, I'm going to sum it up real simple, that God is looking for order. He wants everything to be done decently and in order. And he wants to exhort and edify he wants to encourage, he wants to lift up, and he wants us to be other-centered and not self-centered. And it's interesting, as we covered last week, that when you're endued with one of these gifts, you tend, and, and I find it funny, when someone's come up to me with a word, a word of knowledge or a word of prophecy, uh, I, I know them personally, and all of a sudden they take on a countenance of a seriousness, like they're, they have this authority, and it's just so overwhelming, they're not sure how to present it to me, and, and, and it's almost as though they're positioning themselves to let you know that God has spoken to them with the bat phone, and you didn't get a call, but I'm going to, maybe you've never experienced that, I have, it's, it, it puts me off a little bit, um, and, and oftentimes people come to me with a word that doesn't come to fruition, uh, other times I've seen it where it has been remarkable and it's come to me in such a humble manner and I see the contrast between the two and in one case I'm tremendously blessed and the other I'm kind of taken aback by it. Maybe some of you have never experienced that. Some of you may not even believe that that exists. I can assure you it does uh, and, and in time if, if you're patient you'll experience it. Um, and, and yet throughout all of this you can have this supernatural gifting without being supernaturally weird 
And you don't have to carry this mantle of, of uh, superiority as you... I mean, the gifts can be dangerous. They're like nuclear power. Uh, when contained, they can light cities and, 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 and industry. And when they're not contained, they can destroy cities, right? Nuclear power? Okay. I was just thinking maybe you got that, but it doesn't seem like you did. Okay. He begins with, very simply, pursue love. Pursue love. Love is other-centered. Greater love has no man than this, and to lay down his life for a friend. And he says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. The two can be together. You can pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, because if you're other-centered, you're not going to use the gift for your own empowerment and, and uh, elevation. Uh, you want to serve people humbly. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be a servant of all. But especially that you may prophesy. Why does he emphasize prophecy over tongues? It's interesting. He says, for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. We've covered that. Uh, There used to be believers meetings at the Calvary Chapel. Someone would speak in a tongue. The person would say, we're going to wait for an interpretation. Somebody would stand up and say, "Uh, thus saith the Lord, God is. And I, I remember the person facilitating said, no, 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 no. That's not the interpretation of the tongue. It's probably a word of prophecy and we'll wait on that. We're waiting for an interpretation of the tongue. Because a tongue is never God speaking to man. A tongue is always man speaking to God. Psalms, hymns, spiritual praises, making melody in your heart. You got that? Anybody struggle with that? Okay. We can cover that later tonight. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Edification is a building up. Exhortation is an empowering to go forward. And comfort is very simple. It's this idea of coming alongside and, and, uh, and helping somebody. So he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. And it's interesting that this is the one gift in the body of Christ everyone thinks needs to be the identification of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the gift of tongues. And you go in, it's a cacophony of noise, and yet the reality is it's self-edification. It's a church completely consumed with itself. And I'm not saying that the scripture is. This this idea that it edifies the individual doing it. So you have a non-believer coming in, they have no idea what's taking place. They just hear people mumbling. And... and, um, He says, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. It's where you get the word edifice, a building up of a a structure. He edifies the church, or I should say edifies, ready? The ecclesia, the ecclesia. That's the term used here in 1 Corinthians 14, ecclesia. He edifies the assembly. Everyone say assembly. He edifies the assembly. Now, an assembly can be where two or more are gathered, right? He edifies the assembly. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. So if there's an interpretation, that is pretty remarkable. And I've been to a believer's meeting where there has been the gift of tongues exercised and the gift of interpretation of tongues emphasized. And what was fascinating about it to me was that it was a musical, kind of a melodic, uh, almost a psalm being sung in this language. And it wasn't the typical one that you hear all the time, the should have bought a Hyundai, should have bought a Hyundai. It was, it was a, I had never heard it before. It was fascinating. And then over in the other part of the room, the same melody and the, and this, you know, it was just melodic and it was beautiful and it was, it was man speaking to God and it, was, it, it touched the entire room and it was profound and I was, I was moved by that, profoundly moved by that. It edified me. Uh, but he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? And this is what builds the church up. This is the edification and exhortation and comfort that comes from these giftings. Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how it will be known what is piped or played. You hear a symphony, and, and unless there's a distinction between the wind instruments and, and you, know, you have the clarinet and you have the, 
the saxophone, each of those have a distinct sound. And if you're going to hear uh, a bugle cry, you need to know the difference between charge and reveille. Uh, one is you, 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 know, you wake up in the morning and the other is you go forward and engage the, the battle. And that's what he's saying in relation to this idea of tongues. If everyone is just a cacophony of noise and there's, there's no interpretation, it is just exactly that. Clanging cymbals, sounding brass, self-edification, self-glorification. Even things without, not self-glorification, but it, it edifies you individually. Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will be prepared for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue uh, words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? Um, you know, you, you come in and have you ever, maybe some of you haven't, but you travel to a foreign country and you got to ask them where the bathroom is and, and you don't know the language and, and you're saying bathroom and they're looking at you like, what do you, and you say it slower as though somehow that's going to help bathroom. And my mother would always, you know, pretend when we were in uh, France or we were in Rome, when we were traveling this one time in the Mediterranean she was adding Spanish words to somehow make it, you know, like L and la, la bathroom, L bathroom, L bathroomo. It just didn't seem to work. And, and how will it be known what is spoken? It's, it, you, you, you need this interpretation for an understanding to occur, especially within a body of believers. For you will be speaking into the air. Uh, you, you, you can be in a room where somebody is speaking fluent Russian, you have no idea, you've never heard a word of Russian, you can't even distinguish that it is Russian, and it's just noise going into the air. Somewhere in the history of man, someone made a sound, connotated it with, with this, and everyone in the group agreed, and then the language was formed. Uh, quite possibly the Tower of Babel, there was one unified language, and then all of a sudden everyone was given separate languages. And so here you have this idea of speaking into the air because no one has any idea what you're saying. Um, there are times where you're going to be in a worship service and you'll hear a song that has the melody and the harmony uh, and you, and it, it, you, you recognize the, 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 the song and you're trying to think in English uh, what the words are to that, but you're hearing it in a, you know, I've been to Germany and I've heard a, a, um, a Maranatha praise song in German and I'm trying to, in my head, interpret it through English and it's still difficult, even with the, the instruments aligned with what I'm familiar with, even the sound itself of the words confuses me. Is everyone confused already? Good, let's keep going. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner. And it's actually a barbarian is the term. Um, uh, and that's where they get this idea that if somebody gathered into the room and you had foreigners coming into the Roman Empire and they were speaking a language that wasn't Latin, um, it sounded to them like they were bar, 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 so they called them barbarians. Uh, and they call it foreigner here, but the translation in, in the Greek is barbarian, barbar, bar, 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 bar. It doesn't make any sense. You are barbar. You are a foreigner who speaks and we have no idea what you're saying. And he who speaks will be a bar, 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 bar to me. Even so, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Let me just pause for emphasis on that. It's not for you to be promoted. It's not for people to go, wow, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen to you speak in tongues. That is fascinating. Where's the edification? You should seek to prophesy more than speak in tongues in that relation. And I'm not talking about a prayer language. I'm not talking about, as it says in Romans, groanings too deep for words. I'm talking about the gift of tongues. And, and without interpretation, it is self-edification. And God is pointing out through the Apostle Paul that it's the idea of edifying the assembly, not the church, the assembly. For the edification of the assembly, you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For indeed, for you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. And this is where many people translate this as not only can I speak in a tongue, but I can also interpret my tongue. Um, I'll leave room for that. 
every time I've seen it, it's kind of cockamamie. I, I'm, I'm, I, I've never been edified or blessed by it. It didn't strike me like it did in the room with one person doing this and another person doing it. But one person speaks in a tongue and then translates uh, himself or herself. Okay. I, I've seen children do that. You know, they make up their language and then they say, well, this is what I said. Okay. Uh, I don't see anything supernatural in that, but good for you. And, 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 and honestly, I, I have to say, I could be completely wrong in that, and I'm open to being wrong. I can just tell you it hasn't edified me personally, and it could be I'm closed in that, but you can pick on me later or pray that God would illuminate my mind and bless me with that. Can I get an amen? And I clearly communicated that. Um, for indeed he gives thanks well, but the other is not edified. Verse 18, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. So Paul spoke with tongues. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. I don't know about you, but I think that's a a huge emphasis on the power of the gift of teaching and preaching as opposed to the gift of tongues. And oftentimes in, in charismatic Pentecostal churches, and we talked about this on Sunday where you had the divergence with the... Um, the Schofield Bible after uh, uh, the Azusa Street Revival, and here you have a dispensational Bible that is a cessationist Bible, and and you had these folks of the Azusa Street Revival that weren't highly educated, and they wanted to know the word better, so they embraced the Schofield because someone made it available to them, and then you had these divergent groups going in these directions, and uh, and, and one emphasized the spirit, the other emphasized the word, and it's sad because the two should be together. There should be a spirit and truth and, and signs and wonders and all in combination together. Um, and, and Paul says, but teaching is of great importance, and I emphasize that. And he, he lists that very clearly. I didn't say it, Paul did, and Paul didn't say it, the Holy Spirit did. Verse 20, brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice, be babes, but in understanding, be mature. And what he's saying is dwell with one another in a sense with unity, uh, carry no malice. Little kids are, you know, they, they get over it um, and they forgive. You tell them you're sorry, I'm sorry. You know, it's really sweet. And that's what he's looking for in relation to the community of Ecclesia. But he wants us to be mature and understanding. Get to know how this operates because there's going to be folks taking advantage of it. I remember when we used to have a believers meeting, a woman would come in and she'd sing these jazz tunes and just start going off in these weird things. And you could just sense it was like, you know, Quenchville. Uh, the, the room would be moving. You just sense the presence of the Lord. She'd get up, poof, just done. And I, I couldn't wait to get out. And I, I just, it, it, it was sad. And, and I didn't know how to, how to facilitate a believer's meeting. I was so new at this. And it just seemed like every week you'd get one of those, those things happening. Well, over time, you start to become mature and understand that and operate through that process. And that's what he's saying here. In the law, it is written, verse 21, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. So when, when I was kind of fresh in the Lord and still kind of figuring myself out in all this and hearing that, I was, I was thinking, gosh, the Lord is profound and powerful, and this is something way beyond anything I've ever experienced. This is more than a self-help organization. This is more than a, a motivational seminar. This is profound. And that's, if you come into a, a believer's meeting and you're a non-believer and you hear somebody do this and then you hear somebody interpret, you're stunned. I mean, it is a very profound picture and it touches you deeply. But for this idea of prophesying, uh, um, motivating people to go into a direction, this idea of exhortation to, to show them what, w- what the, what the vision is for, for capturing, say, a community and things of that sort, uh, that is for believers. Therefore, verse 23, if the whole church comes together in one place, and let me, let me correct that. Therefore, if the whole assembly comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there comes in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? I remember when I was dating Michelle and she had a co-worker that invited to her church that was uh, charismatic, I would say hyper-charismatic, everybody there spoke in tongues. She, I'd been witnessing to her, telling her about the Lord. We weren't quite dating, I was just trying to tell her about the Lord. 
And she said, that was the weirdest, most bizarre thing I've ever been to. I don't know if I want to go to a church. It was odd. And, uh, and, and I, I, I was burdened by that. And at the time, I was a cessationist. And I was thinking, that is just, there, there's a part of me saying it was demonic. And I've, I've since uh, come to a, a, uh, an understanding, as the scripture says, of maturity in relation to that. But that's what he's saying. Will they not say you're out of your mind? What is going on? There's no interpretation. And people are just babbling. Bar, 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 bar. Why don't I just go to a Hispanic church even though I don't speak Spanish? I, I'll accomplish the same thing. Tracking me? Again, I'm not saying it. Paul is. And he's emphasizing the significance. Therefore, if the whole church comes together, if, if the whole assembly comes together in one place, and this idea, uninformed believers will say, are they out of their mind? Verse 24, but if all prophesy... And an unbeliever, an uninformed person comes in. He is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. And this, this picture that you, you hear a word of prophecy or you hear a word of exhortation, uh, and it is intense. And, and I've seen this where someone comes up and says, um, God's put something on my heart. I have a word of knowledge for you. And they share it with this person who's just attended. And they have it down. It, it, I mean, it is, it's chilling, to witness something like that. Um, uh, you, you, you've got cancer of, of the right lung. How did you know that? And now granted, we've had charlatans that have the earpiece and they're, they're getting reports and they've done Google searches and they're playing the crowd and the whole bit. Uh, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about legitimate, profound word of knowledge, prophecy, exhortation, all of these things. Uh, it's speaking into a relationship of sorts and things of that, that nature. It, it is profound and touches people deeply. Um, where did I leave off? 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. He says, let all things be done for edification. It's like they, they, they all come to the assembly and everybody at the same time, I have a word from the, well, I have a word from the, well, I, I have a, humana, 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 could you hang on just a second? Blah, 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 blah. Hey, whoa, 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 hey, hey, hey. And everybody wants to parade their gift. Well, I've got the, and I'm, and they're all just not here tonight. There's nobody even awake, maybe. I'm not, but. But this is what's happening, and Paul says, stop. It, there's, there's, let all things be done for edification. We want to build people up. It's not about you being, being in front of everybody. That's the danger of the gift. Look what I have. I want everyone to see it. Holy Spirit's humble. He lifts up Christ that all men would be drawn unto him. We don't even talk about him. He's so behind the scenes. And, I, and, and the people that have touched me and the ones that come up and they, they wait patiently and there's a line of people waiting and they'll, they'll, no, no, go ahead, go ahead. And they go ahead and then the other, oh, go ahead. Finally, the whole room's cleared and I'm, um, Pastor, are you too tired or do you have a moment? I, I do, sure, yeah, what is it? I, I, I'm not sure what to do with this. And, I, you know, and you just see their countenance. There's this, a tenderness and a humility. And I, I think I have a word for you and I'm nervous. Well, don't go ahead. I, I welcome it, please. And let me bring someone in so we can together hear it so I don't misinterpret it. And, 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 they bring, and they share it, and it's just, oh, it's like a, a bomb of Gilead. It's just soothing to my soul, and it's so edifying and encouraging, and it's a blessing. That's the idea. But that's not what was happening in Corinth. Everybody wanted everyone else to know how special they were. Um. If anyone speaks in a tongue, verse 27, let there be two, or th- be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. So if somebody stands up and starts going, and then you let somebody interpret, and there's no interpretation, you just go, well, you know what, we're not at that place, so let's move on, let's wait upon the, uh, and if everyone, well, I have a tongue, and they start saying, not, no, we don't want a cacophony of noise, one at a time, just, we're here to not let you be the first to be heard, we're here to edify the body, so let's wait, and it's, that's what's taking place. Um, verse 28, but if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. And oftentimes, I'll, I'll be next to somebody and you'll just hear them and they're just, and it's not quite silent, but it's not disrupting. And other times, it's just loud enough so that they want you to know they're there. That's just my opinion. But here, it clearly says keep silent, and it's just between 
yourself and God. So enjoy your look. And, and don't sit in the front row. Go to the back. And, and you and the Lord have that moment because there's, th- th- that's your edification and you just go and have that moment. You don't need to be in an assembly for the most part because you're not edifying the assembly. And, and it's just you and the Lord. So go get, find a quiet place. Find a prayer closet. That's the idea. He's saying keep silent. Let him speak him, uh, to himself and to God. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. And that's going to be judged by what? The word. Um, you know, you'll, you'll hear somebody prophesy and state something that is just not scripturally sound. And it's off the rails. And, uh, and that's, that just doesn't work. And you, you, have to, you have to be prepared for that. Um, you're you're going to get that in a believer's meeting. And they're, they're going to they're be sown tares amongst the wheat. Um, let's see. No interpreter, himself to God. Okay, two, three, verse 30. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So the emphasis is, it's going to be an orderly assembly. It's not going to be about parading yourself. It's not going to be about saying what cool gift I have and look at the chevrons on my arm and my promotion that I got because I have a special gift over you. There is a humility. There is a subtleness to it. There is a tenderness. There is a patience. There is a peace. There's no confusion. There's no interruption. Everybody feeling that? Verse 34. I'm going to read through this very quickly. (laughs) Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Um... I am of the interpretation that this is cultural, that Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. Uh, There was a whole different concept going on there. I've read copious amounts on this. And the idea is um, they would divide it and the women would dominate on this side of the room and and then the whole head coverings and all these other aspects of it. And it was cultural. I don't believe it it applies that women are to remain silent in the church. Um, that's not how I see it, and we'll cover that more later, but I don't want to focus on it. I just want to say that the interpretation that no women in the church are allowed to speak, I don't buy it. So any doubt on that, come and challenge me later. Verse 36, or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it, on, uh, was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues and let all things be done decently and in order. They, they had disorder in the church and the disorder in the church um, had to do culturally, especially male and female. Um, prior to that, all women, prior to Christianity, all women were considered property. Uh, their, their testimony was less than a male's. The Roman Empire had emphasized that. And now uh, you have a complete um, empowerment in the genders that happens through Christendom. And this is laid out. And, um, and they, they didn't know how to interact. It was like a whole new uh, uh, embodiment of freedom. And, and it just it, it, it got out of control. So uh, that's the picture on that. But the idea is you have an assembly. And, and throughout... 1 Corinthians 14, we've seen the term church, church, church. Well, the interpretation of church is ecclesia. Catholics call it ecclesia, and they, they do that to do ecclesiastical, and they want to emphasize the priesthood. That's not it. Ecclesia, uh, I want to take a look before we begin. Um, this, is, this is the last book of the Bible, and this is a declaration of what's going to occur in heaven. And I, I, as, as we have this pre-trib, pre-millennial theology where, you know, Jesus, the rapture's coming and we're going to be taken and, and um, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbag and we're just polishing brass on the Titanic. Okay. Every eschatology comes with an asset and a liability. 
And, and in this case, pre-trib, pre-millennial, which is dispensationalism is a concept of the last 100 years. I'm not saying I'm not a pre-trib, pre-millennialist. What I'm saying is it does have a liability to it. And Calvary Chapel is a perfect picture of that liability that we've been doing this for 50 years and we've had zero impact on the state of California uh, in many regards. We own property, we have buildings, we have assets, uh, we've got schools, we've got Christian camps, we've seen conversion, 10,000% growth, but the state of California itself, we have murdered more babies since the inception of Calvary Chapel and abortion became legal in 73. We have murdered more babies the entire population of Canada. Pausing for emphasis. And, and when you read this in uh, Revelation chapter 21, it says, um, And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. So the Lord emphasizes this idea that not only are there going to be people, that not only are there going to be kings of the earth that bring their glory and honor uh, to this, but also nations. And people say, well, when every tribe and tongue has heard. No, nations. It's a very clear picture in the New Testament. The word nations means nations, boundaries, borders, compacts, agreements, citizenship, governmental structures, nations. You don't, you don't dance around that. It's nations. And, and we look and we say, okay, most of the world is, is embodied by an oligarchy, whether it's socialism, communism, fascism. Here we have a constitutional republic. We represent a very unique governmental structure never before in the history of the world. Uh, democracy or, 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 or the rule of law exists in some portion of Western Europe, comes over the Atlantic, but here you have this representative form of government, accountability, moral knowledge infused in the populace. Uh, a constitutional republic can't survive without a moral people, John Adams. And, and we look at it and we say, okay, We've got that government, we've got that nation, and, and what is the church's role, and what is the church? And so when we use the term church, we always think of, of this, or this. This is the church. And, and in reality, uh, that's not the case. Jesus used this term twice. He used this term twice. Now, for church planting, you would think that the Lord would teach his disciples how to plant a church. And he would speak about church planting. And we have spent countless dollars on church planting. We just met with missionaries yesterday, and we've got missionaries in Moldova, and we've got missionaries in Uganda, and we've got missionaries in Cyprus, and we've got missionaries in Japan, and we've got missionaries in Cambodia. And the idea is, how do you plant a church? We've got folks that want to plant churches, and we've got guys and gals coming all the time. I'm here to plant a new church. Praise the Lord. But the concept of church is not what you see behind me. That is not the church. Jesus uses the term church in Matthew 18. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my, everyone say church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, I got news for you. The gates of hell are prevailing against the buildings. And, but the concept of church, that is an inappropriate definition of that word. The, that word ekklesia means assembly. Below is in the Greek uh, of Matthew 16, 18. You can see underline is what in the Greek constitutes the word ekklesia, translated, real simple. I pulled it up here for you. A gathering of citizens called out from their homes into a public place, an assembly. And during the time of Christ, there were three main institutions in Israel, the temple, the synagogue, and the ecclesia. The temple, the synagogue, and the ecclesia. Now, the synagogue was a gathering place of the religious. The temple was a gathering place of the religious. The ecclesia, um, interestingly enough, was not a religious gathering place. When Jesus introduced ecclesia, his intention all along was to co-opt an existing secular concept and infuse it with his kingdom DNA. It was a secular concept. Uh, I'll give you a, a perfect Definition, but first it says the ecclesia, unlike the temple and the synagogue, was not religious. It was developed as a ruling assembly of citizens in the Greek democracy to govern its city states. This was a Greek governmental term. When it came time for Jesus to introduce transformational agency to change the world, Jesus selected neither temple or synagogue, but instead chose the co opt um, of the term ecclesia. Why didn't he say, You are my synagogue, you are my temple? 
Why did he take a term that everyone in the Roman Empire and all Greco-Romans, why did he take a term that all of them associated with government? Why did he do it? The Romans co-opted the term. Um, they actually translated it. The Roman term for ecclesia was conventus civium romanorum. And the, it would be short for conventus. Conventus was a group of Roman citizens as small as two or three gathered anywhere in the world. It constituted the conventus as a local expression of Rome. Its purpose was to have an impact on everybody and everything in the Roman Empire. This would be a conventus. Two or more gathered. Does that sound familiar to you? Were two or more gathered? That was a conventus. That was an ecclesia. The conventus, even though uh, geography separated them from the capital of the empire and the emperor, their coming together as fellow citizens automatically brought the power and presence of Rome into their midst. This is the idea Jesus co-opted when he used the term ecclesia. He says when you gather and you assemble together, so you already have a gathering, an ecclesia, and when you gather in a larger ecclesia, Uh, here's Matthew 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Drops down to verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. This is an ecclesia. This is a gathering. And what is he saying? Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. You're, 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 You're declaring this. And, and Jesus said that every, or, or the Lord said, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And Christ said, in, or Paul said in Colossians 2, that he has nailed this to the cross so that the, the, the keys to the earth are his again. He's, he's gotten them back. And we, we, we I, I love this definition uh, to, to contrast ecclesia and the church. Ecclesia was not meant to be a sterile, sanitized holding tank into which his disciples were to store in isolation converts fished out of a turbulent and doomed sea to await arrival of a refrigerator ship to transfer to a heavenly port for final processing. You tracking that? You don't, you, well, maybe we'll bring him to church. Pastor, are you going to preach a really good Christmas Eve service so that my, my, my loved one can get saved? That's not the Ecclesia. I, I, I'm, I'm not the only evangelist, preacher, teacher. You are. And you're ordained as an ecclesia to do this. Um, the idea of an ecclesia is when, when two or three in this conventus Romanorus, when they would get together, they would emphasize and represent the emperor and all of his purposes, knowing Roman law, and they would infuse the culture with this Roman ideal. So Christ co-ops this term, and, and we, had a, we had all of Asia. You can read Acts 18 and 19. All of Asia is reached within just a, a, a moment of time. They've run out of places to evangelize because the church is spreading. God added to their numbers daily those who are being saved. They're going in front of, of governors. When you, when you go and you see in Cyprus, there they are in front of uh, uh, the governor there. They're, they're, they're in Ephesus. They're in every nook and cranny of the Roman Empire because he co-opted the term ecclesia. And what they did is they did two or three. These folks would go over to this gathering. They'd go into that marketplace. They would go into this assembly. They would go over here to this governmental structure. They would go over to this building community. They'd go over there to this, uh, this mason organization. And they would participate and infuse this culture with the king's commands, his moral knowledge. And they would do it in such a way that they'd be honest. And they wouldn't steal. And they wouldn't take bribes. And they wouldn't gossip. And they wouldn't slander. And they would gather together in prayer. And they would have this ecclesia. And in this ecclesia, they would ask for supernatural power to reach the people that they loved. And they'd be praying fervently for that business that they were a part of, that they were the ordained minister to go into that realm and infuse it. And you wonder what it is. He points out what the kingdom of heaven is. He says in Matthew 13, another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. 
you go into the world in your realm of influence where you've been called to be a minister. You are the ecclesia. You're praying for supernatural power. You're praying for prophetic word. You're praying for insights. You're praying for a word of knowledge. God is showing you amazing things. You're praying for your coworkers. You're in there and, and, and the way they're, they're watching you and the things that you're saying and the way that you're teaching and the way that you're living and, and they can't hear so much. You know, it's not so much what you're saying as what you're doing. And that leaven is, is infusing all of culture with the presence of Christ. And, and this, is, this, is, um, this is, in a sense, is um, a, a Roman ecclesia. And, and the ecclesia would gather, interestingly enough, in the marketplace. Could you imagine how much of an impact we'd have if we operated our Christian principles and looked at the businesses we participate in and the marketplace we're a part of if that was our ministry and that was our ecclesia. And I can guarantee you, wherever you work, wherever you work, there's another Christian there. And they're waiting for someone to gather together to pray and intercede on behalf of that entire organization and infuse it with this ecclesia and this leaven to lift this entire community. And you also have better business principles. You have great ideas. And God will give you supernatural knowledge. He'll give you wisdom. The ecclesia was designed as a vehicle to inject the leaven of the kingdom of God into the dough of society so that first people and then cities and eventually nations would be discipled. It's 8.03 and I'm going to take you through a real quick understanding of ecclesia. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 9, we're going to take a look at this concept of ecclesia, assembly, bless you. Luke chapter 9, we're going to take a look at verse 37. Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, they were up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, that a great multitude met Jesus. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth. It departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And he had sent them out to cast out demons, didn't he? You can read uh, in context and go further in. And they can't do it. Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And you're going to see momentarily that one of the reasons why they had no power is because they were concerned about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And like the church at Corinth, they got consumed with their self-edification instead of the edification and the building of others. And they wanted the power for themselves so that people would be impressed with how spiritual they were. And as he was, um, bring him here to me, and as he was still coming, the demon threw him down, convulsed him. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. And look at this. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus perceived their thought of their heart, took the little child, and said, I mean, this is the reason why they have no power. And the reason why they have no power is because they are consumed with their self-interest. This is 1 Corinthians 14. The assembly of believers breaks down when you think the gifts are for your edification, not for others. Yes? He says, for he who is least among you, who is least among you all, will be great. You wait in line until everyone's gone. You're, you, 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 you yield. You're pleasant. You're humble. You're meek. Meekness is not weakness. It's a bit in a massive beast's mouth that turns it to the left or the right by the master pulling it. It's strength under control. It has no self-interest. It goes where the master desires. And, and, and gifts... They can be really dangerous if you're, if you're insecure and all of a sudden you come into a realm where you can have a gift and it, and it gives you authority over someone else and you can walk up with a word of knowledge. I've got a word from the Lord. It's, it's a burden that he has placed upon me to give to you. Are you prepared? Well, no, I'm not. And I really am not interested in it. Thank you. 
It's dangerous. Verse 49, John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. They're not pre-trib, pre-millennial. They believe that, that, that the gifts are cessationist. They, they're, they're a congregational form of government. They're Catholics. I mean, let's just go on and on. And yet, people are being delivered. You're in the ecclesia, you're in the marketplace, and you're up against, I'll tell you what, if you're in deepest, darkest Africa where there isn't anyone around and you run into a Catholic missionary, all of a sudden you're going to be remarkably ecumenical. Right? And when the grass grows, the fences disappear. And they're sitting there going, well, they're not, they're not of us, and, they're, and they didn't, and, and we're, mm, and we're the frozen chosen, and we're the ones. But Jesus said to him, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. You've got to roll with this a little bit, folks. Now, the, Samil, uh, the, the Samaritan village, the idea is he... Um, they're going through the Samaritan village. They didn't receive the Lord. And the very first response, and you can see that this is why they don't have any power. The very first thing they want to do is call down fire on the city. You know what? They rebuked the name of Jesus. And I, 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 I pro- proclaimed the name of Jesus and they rebuked me. Let's just burn them. Let's just cook them. I guess none of you have ever seen that or experienced it. We'll do it just like Elijah did. Verse 54, James and John saw this. They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I've got a gift. I can call down fire from heaven. Do you want me to do that, Lord? Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Then he went to another village. And then we come... now. He's rebuked them. He's frustrated with them. They have no power. They can't cast out demons. He's carrying the load. He called them a perverse generation because you're consumed with yourself. You are the first Corinthians 14 church. You have issues. And all of a sudden, from chapter 9 to chapter 10, everything changes. And it's the only time in the entirety of the New Testament that Jesus rejoiced. I think it's important to know what that is. Amen. Okay. Chapter 10, verse 1, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And then he said to them, the harvest is truly great, the labors are few, therefore what? Pray. I guarantee you, Sunday night is not, I I think it'll be half, and this isn't a lack of faith, this is experience, and I pray that I'm wrong. It'll be half the attendance of what we see here on a Wednesday night because it's going to be emphasis of prayer. It is so unnatural to us. And we're going to get some faithful coming out and they want to, they want to pray for you know, Aunt Mary's gout and things of that sort. But this idea of, of praying to the Lord of the harvest that he'd send laborers because the laborers are few. The harvest is great, but the laborers are few. And he's sending them into cities You know what I think is going to change prayer on Sunday nights in the church? Is that when all of you realize that you are ordained ministers into the place that you've been called, the marketplace of business and and personal finance, right? Wealth wealth management, is that correct? Um, I'm going to go down the list what all of us do. And you're called into that realm and you're asking God for supernatural discernment, empowerment. Uh, You're asking for favor. You're asking, and, and you're, you're interceding, and people are coming alongside. I have a word. I think God gave me a word, an insight for you. Oh, wow, that's perfect. Thank you. And, and this is all going to take place because all of a sudden we realize we're praying to the Lord of the harvest. He said, and God, would you reveal other Christians that are in the marketplace with me or in this seat of government or in the halls of government? Will you reveal these things in my, will you show me another classmate in my school that we can intercede and start to pray that, that the leaven of your kingdom would be infused in this campus? And all of a sudden, it takes on a whole new realm. Verse three, go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals. Greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say peace on the house. 
And if a, uh, if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the labor is worthy of his wages. So it, it infers that you're working. Do not go from house to house. Uh, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out in the streets and dust the the dirt off or brush the dirt off. But the idea is you're going to go in and there's a number of things that take place when you walk into a city in accordance with Luke chapter 10. And I want to go through those. First, uh, from verses 5 through 9 of Luke 10, first you bless the lost. Next, you fellowship with them. Next, you minister to them. And then you proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. Can you do that in your workplaces? In your realm of ministry as an ordained minister, can you walk into that realm of ministry and bless the lost? Can you do business with a non-believer? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's profound because, first, it's possible to change the spiritual climate over a city, because you're going to see this in Luke 10, and it's biblical to meet the felt need of unbelievers without demanding that they first receive Christ. Well, I'm, I'm only going to vote for somebody to go into office if uh, they're believers. Well, good luck with that. Drop down to uh, verse 17. So he sends them out, gives us a command, verse 17, then the 70 returned with joy before they were discouraged. Now they return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. What changed? They're all sudden effective because they're not self-consumed. They're other-centered. He gives them a mandate. He lays it out. Go in and bless the lost. Go in and pray for the city. Intercede. Do good. And all of a sudden they come back and they go, even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I mean, that, that city that you just went into had a, a barrier over it. That, that consumed, there was fraud, there was corruption, there was bribery, the, the school system was secular progressive. You just go on and on and on. And I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You guys went in there and you killed it. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and all the pow- over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You're, you're part of the kingdom, and you're infusing it with the leaven of the kingdom. And you're part of this. And he says, verse 21, in that hour Jesus rejoiced. And how did he rejoice? Verse 21, how did he rejoice? Now read the text. How did he rejoice? In the Spirit. He rejoiced in the Spirit. Gifts of the Spirit, he rejoices in the Spirit. Why? Because they're being used in accordance with edifying others. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seems good in your sight. You see the parable of the Good Samaritan at the conclusion of that chapter and, and, and basically... Uh, at the conclusion of that, he says, which one was justified? Was it, you know, he said, the one who did good for him, provided for him, cared for him. He ties all of that in. So, ecclesia, assembly. It's not a place where we come at, at, a, at a hen house or a chicken ranch and all the roosters and hens are making a racket and trying to be king of the roost. It's not about you impressing anybody. It's about all of us serving and infusing the leaven and co-opting this term of assembly wherever you are, wherever you assemble, to change a culture. Jesus took something that was already in existence and wrote it. And you walked in and you had access to every realm of the culture. And you infused it with the leaven of the kingdom. And when you did it, desiring to edify others, even the demons were subject to them. And Jesus said, I rejoiced. 
I watch Satan fall. Now, we can all be depressed and polish the the brass on the Titanic and pray about our gout and have our little gatherings in our building that we call the church. And while we manage the ever-decreasing piece of the pie and fight over it and wait for people to bring more of the fish in so we can refrigerate them until we can get them. Or we can be the leaven, the ecclesia, the assembly. And, and we can be interceding, pray therefore to the Lord of the harvest, praying to the Holy Spirit, asking for supernatural empowerment for that realm that you've been called to, ordained, whether it's education and the seven mountains of cultural influence, arts, entertainment, media, business, family, education, and good politics, religion. Whole different dynamic. Whole different dynamic. And then all of a sudden, Revelation 21 comes to mind that kings will bow down and nations will be changed. Or we can just do a fubu little gathering for us and by us and do our Christian entertainment and our Christian bookstores and our Christian, Christian, Christian or we can be the ecclesia and go out and infuse it with leaven and rise it for the kingdom of heaven. Amen.